How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. So here we are. We should have a guest calling in, but I'm not sure, but I hope so. If so, it's going to be fantastic. If not, we've got another plan all set up. We're going to actually talk about what's happening in our country and around the world with this coronavirus. Mm. You know, the, in our in our local area of Marshville, we're just hearing, Tim's just giving the announcement that uh, Superintendent Maestas of the Plymouth Schools has decided to shut down the schools, at least for a couple of days, to clean them out. Is that right, Tim? Uh, that is right. It looks like um, there was a, a group of students. Dan McCready from the WATD newsroom uh, had the story. It's also online if you want to check it out. A group of students apparently went on a trip to Italy, and uh, they just came back, and they were uh, told to self-quarantine, essentially. And um, and a further update that the newsroom had was that the public schools will be shutting down all 12 buildings just to uh, you know further address this, this situation. Well, well, well. You know, it's... Um it's a very interesting phenomenon when you have what could be a pandemic where there is one small change that happens somewhere in the world and it affects the biological domain of everyone. And I hope what people recognize is, yeah, we need to do something, obviously, to contain this. But what it also speaks to is there are no boundaries this isn't about ethnicity. This isn't about, you know, are you a better person than somebody else? This is what happens. We're human beings, and we are susceptible to the same illnesses. So why can't we figure out that, that we are susceptible to the same illnesses? We're the same species? You know, why do we have to have all this division among ourselves when this could bring us together? Isn't that horrible that the only way we can come together is to have a common enemy? I mean, what's that? Well, it, it speaks to our tribal origins, I guess. You know, one tribe fears another because they're competing over resources, but when something even bigger than them comes to take everything from everyone, no yeah. choice but to band together. Then we band together because now we're afraid as a group. But I really hope people can see the meta message in this. The bigger message is let's forget about this tribalism for a little bit. Let's forget whether you're you know, one group or another, whether you're one race or another, one religion or another, look what's really happening. It doesn't really matter because we're human and we are susceptible to the same things. And that means we're just as susceptible to a disease as we are to the warmth and companionship and compassion that we can give to ourselves, to each other. That's what the IM is really trying to say, folks. Let's forget about judging each other. Let's look again at why we do what we do. And part of why we do what we do is because we're afraid that somebody else is going to judge us. Mm. Right? I mean, isn't that part of what, what happens to everyone? And I think isn't that how a lot of diseases spread is that people are just worried that they'll look weak. So they'll just show up to work knowing that they're contagious. Right. Or, or and I hate, I hate to say this for all those folks out there who think that the measles vaccine is somehow causing autism, which it is not. All of those studies were disputed. You know that, guys. They were all actually, this guy, uh, Wakefield, put mm -hmm. this out in the literature. 
that that the mercury and other things in the measles, mumps, rubella virus uh, vaccination was causing an increase in autism, and so people stop immunizing. Yeah, and even acting under the sum- the assumption that this it's true, which it's not. Which it's not. Ask any uh, person on the spectrum. Ten out of ten will say they'd rather be autistic than dead. <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed. Guaranteed. That's right. And, you know, so if you don't get an immunization, you put somebody else at risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's not your intention, I know, but small changes have big effects, and you control no one. You influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you are. Mm-hmm. Because it, I get both sides of the issue when it comes to, like, mandated immunization because then it becomes an issue of, like, personal choice. But then it's also a matter of public health. Right. Right. So so where is that that fine line, that boundary between the good of everyone, even though it may infringe upon your right? But, you know, that is part of the discussion. It's certainly worth having it. Right. Mm. It's it's profound. But this this coronavirus, I I think people, you know, could get another message from it, which is not to be repetitive, but to say, look, it's affecting Every continent. It's going to be affecting every continent. So let's look at why. Let's solve the problem, but then let's move there saying, yeah, we're, we're actually one species. How cool is that? And unfortunately, we had to have, like I said, you know, potential tragedy to, to prove it again. And I think the silver lining to all this is that I think it's going to brace us so that we're prepared for anything worse. Yeah. This is a real, like, I guess, case study. Yep. Yeah, and it's really interesting the way the news cycle just isn't letting it drop, right? I mean, they're just they're just picking it up. One oh, it's news super cycle sexy. The other. Right, it really is. The Black Plague yeah. revisited. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? There's that that's that saying, right? If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah, and you know, you know think about because people we got preppers all over the country. And I don't think preparation is a bad thing. It's better safe than sorry, sure. But there are people that are so excited about the idea of an apocalypse. It's a really oh sure the like the whole doomsday prepper thing like thinking, you know, with hierarchy just completely demolished. Yeah, all value being assigned to you know the real essentials. You know, food, water, shelter, ammunition. Mm. It's a chance to, I guess, begin again for a lot of people. Mm. That's why so many people liked The Walking Dead and like those post-apocalyptic stories. Is hey, it's civilization with a fresh coat of paint. Maybe a little rustier, but that's a very interesting thought. Why, why do you think people want to start over? I don't know. I think maybe people grow up with regrets. Uh, you know, I don't know who's still watching The Walking Dead, but there's this character that was just called the Governor, who was the villain for like two seasons, and he describes his life before like the zombie outbreak. You know, taking orders for some from someone a third his age and a fifth his IQ. And so when civilization collapses, that's his chance to take the reins. And, you know, his bruised ego kind of manifests in a lot of horrifying ways. But Interesting, huh? Some people get get so stuck in certain places. You know, I wonder, you know, a couple of weeks from now, if all goes well, we're going to have John McAvee. Oh, yeah. And I wonder if he'll talk about viruses. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's an antivirus thing. I mean, if there's anyone who would know. Yeah. 
That could be very interesting. So, um, so is Mark actually able to to call in? You know, or, he's texted me saying he's having trouble logging in. I'm he? assuming he means logging into the Zoom application. Okay. Well, Mark, if you know, hopefully you'll you'll tune in. But if not, we miss you. We're doing okay here, but um, you know, just have fun. He's 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 at a an interesting conference or something. Isn't yeah, it? I'm uh, I'm actually curious what it is because he's been at a few about. Um, like bank owned properties it's it's like really working with him i learn all like the inside baseball of real estate and yeah yeah it's actually it's actually really interesting like the way laws affect home ownership and you and you're doing all sorts of stuff with the dr joe show as well i mean the podcasts the youtube videos you're doing great stuff for oh, us thank so, you well thank you just uh Mostly clips. Sometimes I'll have the the real media chunks of episodes, like the one I just uploaded was about uh, the Cat to Zoom. Yes, and that's actually getting quite a lot of traction. Mm. That old Cast to Zoom. Yeah, people um, are are out there who are in their probably what late fifties or so. You may late fifties, early thirties. <laughs> early thirties. It's true. Yeah, Zoom. Uh, right, Zoom, Z-O-O-M. That was the thing that actually caused Zoom to collapse because we kept putting on this thing right in. And so how how do we do repeats of it when there isn't anybody to answer the Zoom mail anymore? Hmm. Who knew? Who knew? But Christopher Sarson, if you're out there and listening, thank you so much for creating this. He's doing okay, and everybody is doing okay. Um, one day we're going to have Anne on, who's doing this amazing overseas work. Um, it's... it's um, she, she's a physician going overseas helping people in these remarkably developing countries. So we're going to have her on. Next week, we're going to have some folks on talking about humor and actually the evolution of humor and why did humor evolve at all in human beings. Do you think we're ever going to have a full comprehension of it someday? No. No, because... I don't know if I want to fully, you know... But, you know, our comprehension is, is going to be limited by the very brain cells that are trying to comprehend us. Hmm. So our, our, our comprehension is going to be limited by the very brain we have. So the more our brain expands, the deeper our understanding will be, and then there'll be another level. But I really believe that, you know, we're, we're on this cusp, this evolutionary cusp right now of shifting from this primitive limbic system to our more developed prefrontal cortex and how we're going to be using that um, to really anticipate the future. And that's part of what, you know, this coronavirus thing is also teaching us, that we're going to have to be able to anticipate a future that may involve pandemics. Oh, good. We've got somebody on the phone. Dr. Professor Beck, are you on the line there? Yes, I am. Hooray! Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. So, well, it's my 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 pleasure. Great. Um, so, could you? So, we've got Tom in the studio. We've got Mark, who's going to be calling in or is on Zoom. I am so delighted that you're on air. Could you just tell our audience just a little bit first about you, um, and what we're going to be talking about tonight? It's going to be fascinating. Okay. Uh, I, I suppose we're going to talk about our relationships uh, uh, with our uh, with nature and our, especially our companion animals. And and my life did not start that way. Um, I am originally from uh, Brooklyn, New York, like everybody else. And so uh, 
pits were, were very uncommon. Hmm. Uh, you know, apartment living, high density. <clears throat> and, but I always was, were, was fascinated with, with nature and looking at, at nature and animals and plants. I used to walk to the dumps so I could watch rats and birds. Um, and then <clears throat> I, I, after my undergraduate work, I, I went a, ran away from home and went to California and did, uh, to, to be a, an ecologist, I did fire ecological studies, fire ecology studies. And then when I went, was looking to do my doctoral work, which I thought was going to be probably with wolves because I had been studying deer and rodents in the prairies, uh, my major professor, bless his heart, said that wolves are wonderful, but I could be totally funded if I did something more useful, more practical. So I, he suggested studying the dogs of Baltimore and just pretend that they're wolves. And so I did a, uh, an ecological study of the dogs of Baltimore huh. and, you know, home ranges and patterns and so on, uh, really using ecological methods just like it was a wild animal. Um, of course, though, working in an urban area has other advantages because it's well mapped and all that. Um, and so I got into, into this whole area of our relationship with animals and then, really, um, many years later, mostly because of the public health implications, the bites, the diseases, uh, but then I, I, I joined some people who were studying, just beginning to study uh, our relationship with animals from the other point of view. Uh, that there were, after all, there's been always been a long history of people loving animals and. There's lots of literature about animals long before there are any scientific studies. Uh, and so I got into that. I uh, directed the first uh, program to actually study the human-animal bond at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and that's how I, I sort of uh, got into it and then uh, collaborated there with a, a brilliant psychiatrist. And we started looking at what people were doing with with animals. and he. He noticed that you know, we would have people interviewing, we photographing them, and then we at the vet school, and then they would bring maybe their their animal back back into the room, and their whole demeanor changed. Uh, they they smiled, their whole pattern of speech changed, uh, which gave us the idea of putting uh, blood pressure monitoring uh, equipment on them. And sure enough, there were there's a physiological relaxation response in petting and talking to uh, an animal that, that you're comfortable with. That is fascinating. fascinating. And so we, I got into that, and then we, my own particular interest is to look at some of the parameters of why this happens and, and some of the less explored areas with different kinds of animals and different situations. But uh, so uh, for a kid who never had a pet until he was in graduate school, uh, <laughs> become a a person who's obviously quite dedicated to our relationship with animals. And why do you think this went so long unexamined? Because if humans and animals have been bonding for thousands and thousands of years, is it just like something we took for granted and never thought to really delve into the psychology of it? I, you know, Aaron, who's near the psychiatrist, he felt that way. He says it is so common that it gets ignored. I mean, every culture has some pattern of pet ownership different patterns, different species, um, that it is just, uh, and we, we just 
take the relationship in its in its place in in nature with with so for granted that no one really study thought that this was a, a variable that was worth you know, exploring um, and didn't look at except for when you know the fused part you know when when there were diseases from animals or, or injuries uh, or keeping animals healthy enough so we could eat them you know things like that but other than that it it wasn't really appreciated uh, even though uh, an anthropology friend of mine was telling me that. They did a, uh, uh, did a, a language study, and there are hundreds of, of different languages in, in, in around the world. And he, I think he found only, or she, only found one or two that didn't have a word for pet. Wow. Yeah, interesting. And you say that, so that uh, Dr. Burr is also there with you tonight? Oh, no, no. Just, uh, no, no, he's retired and along uh, on the other part of the country. <laughs> I see. But you guys collaborated on these studies, is that right? Initially, yes. Yeah. And our first... Three books with on. He was uh, <clears throat> was was sort of interesting. In fact, his student was this when I joined him and his the group. His student Erica Friedman is actually wrote the first article about how uh, about the, the impact of, of animal ownership that was ever published in a peer-reviewed medical journal, the Public Health Reports, which is part of the Human uh, Health Services. And she's the one who did the study that showed that animal ownership increased one year survival after uh, a heart attack, uh, uh, an infarct or, or a myocardial infarction, uh, and that just sheer ownership, if you look at people who were hospitalized uh, after a heart attack who owned uh, especially dogs, but dogs and cats, versus just non-owners, uh, you actually have an a one-year survival Im improvement by owning an animal. And, of course, as you know, one-year survival is a, is a common measure for severity of heart attack. Now, there are obviously much, lots of other reasons for survival after a heart attack, you know, other social support, the severity of the heart attack, your age, gender. But just animal ownership accounted for about a 4% variance. Which is not a lot, except when you realize how many heart attacks there are. Sure, no, um, it, it's pretty profound. So, so what do you think this is about? I mean, what? How did how did this evolve? Do you think this animal-human connection? Well, I think from the very beginning, uh, humans was as good old social primates that we are. Were 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 select just were selected for being aware of nature. Because you know, primitive people who didn't really pay attention to nature probably did not pass on as many genes as those who did pay attention to nature. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to, uh, as a as an early person, you have to know what you can eat and what you can't eat, uh, how to find food, what's going to eat you. Uh, I mean, it, it's so the relationship with nature is, was selected for to be very much part of our our consciousness. And, and, and today, we, we uh, E.O. Wilson at Harvard uh, coined the expression the biophilia hypothesis, that is a, a love of, of biology, an, an innate tendency to focus on life. And we do this all the time. I mean, uh, we're always attracted to nature. Uh, we All our vacations are often set upon, uh, uh, focused around nature. Um, restaurants put plastics, uh, flowers, 
onto the table so they can't put in regular flowers. But, I mean, we're always aware of, of nature um, and, and are sensitive to it. So that's part of it. Then, if you think about it, uh, companion animals are basically, by companion animals, I mean everything, dogs, cats, a, a fish tank, uh, our, uh, birds, are basically nature on, on demand. So you, you have a, a really like a super dose of our relationship with nature, with, with pets. And then adding to that this wonderful thing, you know Conrad Lorenz, the uh, great behaviorist. Okay. Oh, oh, <laughs> you know, absolutely. The first behaviorist to actually win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> he was a big believer, uh, and it, it's that there's a kind of pre learning that. that Things that you, you can learn and that are, are shared are actually, the, you're sensitive to, to learning it. It's, it's a kind of inheritance. That, that's why uh, he, he did studies with, uh, uh, you know, as soon as an animal uh, sees its, its parent, it's imprinting. Because they were pre-sensitive to be imprinted, so the birds and ducks know to follow their own mother and so on. Uh, but well, one of the things that he felt that, that we were imprinted on was a fondness, a caring for the juvenile form of when you're, when you're first born. And if you look at early precocious, uh, I mean, uh, altricial mammals and birds, those that really need to be cared for, uh, they have an incredible similarity of body form. They have a head that's a little bigger than the uh, purport, disproportion to the body. Their eyes are disproportionately large for their head. Uh, and that's because of the anatomy of eyes and the anatomy of the brain. So it has, the brain actually is, is closer to full size even when born. So you have big-headed animals, which then the body sort of fills out and grows out. So we're pre-sensitive to that presentation. He called it the kinder schema, you know, the, the scheme the pattern of children, uh, the, that juvenile form. And we tend to, if you look at, you know, greeting cards, Christmas greeting cards or anything, when you want to make someone happy or smile or, or use a joke, you use animals like have, that have big eyes and big heads and symmetrical and usually uh, sh sh shorter snouts. Uh, and so the, the raccoon, the panda... Um, I mean, these these win our win our hearts. And also, just you know, Mark Styles has finally called in. Say something there, Mark. Tim, can we got him? Is he on the mic there? Mike, Mark. I'm here. Yes. Zooming in. Good. Okay. The, the only stock that went up today. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Doctor Beck, you you still there? Yep. <laughs> Professor Beck. Yes, I'm good, right good, here. Good. So I've got a, a quick question. So. In terms of, of you know this this face this this animal face that that so appeals to us, is it that we are superimposing our love for our own infants onto animals? But isn't there some evidence that animals have actually evolved also and been selected for to have some of these features? I'm I'm thinking about the new studies that are coming out comparing wolves. To, to other dogs. Hmm. Oh, oh, absolutely. In fact, it's at, at the at the very least. Let me just quickly 
finish that little part of the story, okay. is that one of the things that domestication does, which is the domestication is you know it was nothing more than keep selecting for tameness in the animal. Mm-hmm. And one of the consequences of doing that is you end up with animals that maintain their juvenile physical qualities. So the dog is really a puppy wolf. Huh. Uh, and because it, it, it not only does it maintain the physical juvenile qualities, which is called neoteny, here you have a sexually mature indivi- uh, juvenile, uh, but it also maintains the behavioral juvenile qualities. So our dogs, uh, to some degree cats, horses, cows, are really more like the early, uh, the, the, the juvenile form of, of the wild ancestors. And so you have these juvenile animals that are behaved juvenile, which just means they're socially uh, nice, they like playing, um, and they maintain those kind of qualities, uh, like the, the big eyes and nice face and smiles that like keep our love. And then not only that, but we keep selecting for those traits. You, you, I think you all are familiar with, with dogs that give you that, that sort of eyebrow up that you know, look pathetic, like, don't yell at me, wasn't my fault. Right. They, you know, the eyes go up and, and, and they raise their eyebrows. That is not a wolf thing. That is a dog thing. Uh-huh. We've selected the and, and dogs that now have that muscle to do that. Yeah. And now we're paying for it, Tom. <laughs> it's it is amazing. I mean, we um we had fostered a, a dog, Bella, a black mouth cur, and she's now one of our families. She's not just fostered. I mean, she is Bella, um, and we, I mean, we're absolutely in love with her. You know, sure. and, and and I know, you know, because. We talk a lot about you know some of the neurochemistry, especially a chemical called oxytocin, because we talk a lot about addiction work and how dopamine, you know, all drugs and alcohol force to make dopamine interferes with oxytocin, which is this you know this neurohormone of trust and attachment. So is that part of what's going on? Um, That's the mechanism. Yeah, it's the same mechanism as as human love, right? Yeah. So if if you uh, do both the dog and the human as they interact, you will see oxytocin increases. Yeah, I, I think um, that's the coolest thing. And, and of course, it's, oxytocin, so it's true. I mean, it, it, so it is you know, very real. Um, uh, and, you know, you say, well, they, they, there's that love. The truth of the matter is, if you do interview studies, uh, the vast majority, well over 78%, close to 80%, identify their relationship with their, especially dog or cat, as a member of the family. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, the other 20, 30%, except for about 1% who sees it as, as something you own, the other 20, 30% still considered it as a, a friend or, or pet or, or companion. But being a member of the family is very, very common. Uh, you can, you, you want a, a very simple demonstration of that is that we name our pets. Mm. There's not too many things that people name. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know, there's probably somebody who names a toaster or something, but that's not common. Uh, and why people don't think about, why do you name something? 
why were we named? Why do you name your children? And that's mainly to give them individuality. Yeah. You're, you have a name because your parents wanted you when they went to the school to pick you up, not the first kid who's there. I must admit, this reminds me, many years ago, um, when my kids were younger, we, we had chickens as well. And we were mm-hmm. all sitting at the table. My, my eldest at that point was maybe 11 or 12. My youngest was, you know, four or five. And we were reading this book together about how to raise chickens. And it says, you know, don't give your chickens names because you may wind up, you know, eating them. Sure. And I must admit, I, I, I put the book down and I turned to each one of my children and I said, and this is why each of you has a name. And they, <laughs> they never really forgot it. Um, but it's so true. But, but, you know, when you talk about that study about the blood pressure decreasing, that probably is also an oxytocin phenomenon because cortisol oh, sure, increased stress. Stress is, a, you know, cortisol-driven. It's this chemical in our body that increases blood pressure. And we know that that decreases when there's more oxytocin around. Right. So, so this is really cool. And Mark, Mark is on the line there because what he and I do on at least once a week is we take both of our dogs out for walks. You still there, Mark? I am. Um, and you want to tell them a little bit about about your dogs, just for a moment? <laughs> well, we typically rescue our dogs, so part of our whole uh, bringing them into the family is, is trying to give them a better better life. And um, we've rescued Rudy from Tennessee. He was found uh, in, in a pile, a litter of, of black labs, and he is not black. He is red, so he's the redheaded stepchild of that litter. Um, and we've also uh, since rescued a Sato from Puerto Rico after uh, Hurricane Maria. And we named uh, we named Papa Sito uh, so that he would uh, be more comfortable uh, with his native language. And all of the commands we've taught him uh, to train him have been in Spanish. So I'm, I'm hoping that he's more comfortable and confident uh, as he as he uh, immerses himself into our culture. That's just wonderful. Uh, Alan, you, you my, have, na- my neighbors think I'm crazy, but they're right. And that's, and that's fine. You know, that's there I am. It's there I am. Right. Um, right. So, uh, Alan, you, you said that you didn't have pets until you were in college? Right. And now? Just it wasn't part of our, our life in, 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 in New York City at the time. Yeah. My my eldest daughter is now living in New York, and she recently was walking down the street, and she saw what she thought was a rat running around, and uh, it turned out it was a chinchilla. In New huh? York? In New York. It was somebody's huh? chinchilla had escaped, and so they adopted this chinchilla um, f- until they could find a home for it, and they eventually found a home somebody had other chinchillas but they said it was this remarkable experience for them because they're in New York, they're in Queens they're in in an apartment and now they've got this pet that's sort of looking around and chinchillas apparently are quite fascinating when they get angry they will stand up and urinate on you 
clear message. Clear, clear message. Don't we wish we could do that? <laughs> right. Right. I, I don't know whether we can say it on the air, but that means you're really kind of pissed off, I suppose. But um, so do you have pets? Be pissed off at this time. Um, so do you have pets now? <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, sure. I've had. I've, uh, the first dog I ever got is when I moved to Indiana, uh, and I have two, uh, uh, two small dogs now, rescue dogs. And sure, of course. Uh, I mean, but it's uh, and that maybe that's actually uh, one of the things is that uh, I suspect one of the major ways animals can lower your blood pressure and and so on uh, is well for two reasons: one that you perceive you're not alone when you're with your pet, mm-hmm. uh, and also it's a wonderful focus of attention, just like when you walk. Like you folks walk with your dogs and so on, and if, as you know, if if you can stay in the present, you're more relaxed. Mm-hmm. Much of 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 ten- tension comes out of bemoaning the past and worrying about the future. Mm-hmm. But if it's all you're thinking about is right now and having a good time with it, that alone will give you a relaxation effect. And then, of course, animals are a source of humor, and they're <clears throat> and they're a source of socialization. We view people with with animals as better people, and we tend to form relationships and so on. So there's all these little little, little off patterns that, that come out of our relationship with animals that have these you know wonderful, comfortable, uh, and health enhancing effects. Was that a pattern or a pattern? I'm sorry, I couldn't. I I do that. I'll give that a, I'll give that a six. A six? That's not bad. That's not bad. Professor, you mentioned uh, studying dogs in Baltimore. Uh, you mean so in Baltimore specifically? Do you think that animals like humans develop their own cultures and even dialects? Well, they they actually do. Uh, I'm. Uh, they don't even have to have dogs. Uh, <clears throat> studies of, of bird populations find that. The, there are dialects, but if you look at, at the whole pattern of the birds, the ones that, say, at the northern end actually are, are different than the ones on the southern end in terms of, 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 of sounds they use and, and so on. And, and I think that's true for our animals, too. Uh, but they're probably, our dogs are probably more influ- influenced by us than by the other dogs. Um, Baltimore was particularly an interesting uh, city because much of the... Uh, uh, the row houses and such have direct back stairways to the to the to the street, so even people on the second floor or third floor can let their dogs out, as opposed to you don't see as many strays say in Manhattan because dogs don't don't take elevators by themselves. So uh, it, it was I just lucked out that the school I was in happened to be in Baltimore, but it, it lent itself very nice to uh, to, to the studies. So, so you were um, studying wild, like dogs. Well, by what you know, it, it's a little different than the the others looking at wild dogs, say in in Africa. Uh, the, the the stray dogs. That's why I call them stray, stray dogs. Sure. It's a combination of perhaps feral dogs. Dogs actually, though they're uh, born to the street, so that's a small population. Most of it are just loose pets. Like cats. People that are uh, let their dog out uh, much of the day, um, and so that's why we, I call them free ranging because it's a combination of of, of mo- several kinds of dogs that way. 
Some are left out all the time. Some only just come out every once in a while. And some actually live their, their whole life out there. But that's actually a smaller part, at least in urban America. In rural America, in, in, in wildlife refuges, you do see truly, you know, wild dogs. But, but, so what, what were your findings? Oh, well, one, they, they, uh, they have much smaller, uh, they have small groups because their real group is, is, the, is the human being. Uh, uh, they have relatively small home ranges. Uh, they learn patterns of garbage collection and so on, so they know to go to different places uh, on different days. Uh, so that was that was kind of uh, interesting. Um, and like, uh, and for the most part, just like the 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 uh, truly stray dogs say of of Jamaica and, and, and Nassau, they learn to actually be very nice because dogs that bark or, or, or threaten, don't let, they're never fed, or they're even, you know, picked up by animal control. So actually, uh, our loose dogs are, for the most part, um, very, you know, are fine. That's why we see most bites are really owned animals uh, adjacent to where the owner lives. That's where you see most of your bites. Uh, while the, the stray dogs are just uh, smart enough to be fine, are fine. Uh, what I thought was very interesting in Baltimore is, is how uh, creative they are in, in using the environment. They'll find uh, little holes in, in abandoned garages or houses to, to hide. Uh, they use uh, buildings and trees and so on uh, to get out of the sun and, and, and know how to use that carefully. They know how to hide in, in shrubbery. So you can actually be right near a dog and not even know it's there. Um, so that was, was, was kind of interesting. Uh, and one of the real contributions I made, uh, uh, in all fairness, is, you know, it's, we want to know how much, how many there are of any wild population or animal population. And there are all kinds of ways of estimating populations. The most common way, of course, is to catch an animal, mark it, and let it go again like bird banding and bat banding and, and marking them, because then there are all kinds of little mathematical things you can do when you recapture an animal. You can see how much, how often they've been captured and how they're mathematically, how diluted they are in the whole population. Um, in, in some ways, we use, that's, we use, that's, that's how we used to cat, uh, figure out how many people there were. You would interview them and come back a year later and find out if you ever interviewed before. Um, well, what, one of my contributions is that we are so comfortable and so familiar at, with our dogs that unlike wild looking at wild animals, we can tell them apart, even just the way we saw them. So I used photo recapture as opposed to actually having to catch the animal and put a tag on it or, or so on, um, just by walking the streets systematically uh, and, and photographing every animal. And we're able to develop you know, estimates of the real population without ever touching them, without them ever knowing that we were even sampled. And that was kind of fun. And then that's now being done uh, with other animals too, um, giraffes, because their neck is actually almost like a fingerprint. Uh, if you had their pictures, you can tell them if you've seen them in the past. With dogs, you don't even need that detail because you can just recognize them right away because we're so comfortable uh, looking at, animal, at dogs. Right. So what are you working on these days? Well, uh, <clears throat> one of the uh, well, one of the earlier studies that have been very successful 
is that I was uh, with a, a, a colleague in the School of Nursing who studies Alzheimer's patients in hospitals. One of the big problems of Alzheimer's patients is, is they, they don't eat well. They're, they're distracted, they're, they, uh, they're often uh, uh, angry and, and so on, and they don't seem to feel hunger. And no one seems to be able to, no one was able to sort of hold their attention, television, music, none of that seems to work with advanced Alzheimer's. But we found that just basic fish tanks with, you know, just goldfish uh, worked. It's probably because um, our fascination with nature, the biophilia hypothesis, probably even survives dementia. And when the Alzheimer's patients sit and relax and they, they, they at least watch the fish, they eat more because the food's right in front of them. They're not agitated to walk away. Uh, and that's been a, a real contribution. And now, of course, uh, fish tanks are very common in, in nursing homes around the world, uh, around the country. Um, so that was, you know, one uh, contribution that we were uh, very happy with. Um, and it's just very simple hypothesis. We care about nature, and so make the nature available. Um, and so that was, you know, uh, one work. Um, That's really interesting. So I'm just curious. Um, there's a, a hunger hormone called ghrelin. Um, is is that being studied? Is is ghrelin being in, increased in Alzheimer's folks who are hanging out with pets? We didn't look at it at all. I don't know because it, the once you they were less agitated and would sit in one place. That alone seemed to uh, explain why they were willing, you know, well they would eat. So we never, we, we don't think there was actually a, a true physiological okay. change. That's an area of study that's worth looking at. Okay, because that that's really interesting. Because um, we got we got a few minutes left, so I, I just want to flip this around for a second because we've spoken a lot about the human attachment to animals, but I'm thinking about about my dogs and how attached they are. We've got one dog, a little pug, who's now 12, 13 years old. She will not go upstairs if there's still one of our family, one of her family downstairs. You know, whenever, right. when, when, when people are going up to bed, she will stay downstairs until the last person has gone up to bed, unless we sort of cajole her. What about that side of things, the attachment of the animal to us? We have an incredible attachment. We've been selecting animals so much that you see behaviors in dogs that are never seen anywhere else. Mm. For instance, not only that will they stay with the person, but they will look at where you're pointing. No wild animal, including uh, wolves, will follow a point. Yeah. What the hell is that supposed to mean? Right. You, you know what we've done with, with Bella, uh, because Bella, Bella is young and she loves to go outside, but but because some, because in the winter we can't go outside much, I've taught her to play hide and seek. So I will hide a, a toy of hers. She'll she have to sit in one room. I'll hide it and I'll say, go find it. And she'll go look and we'll be able to go warmer, warmer, colder, colder. And she will find it. And then she'll bring it to me and we'll give her a, a treat. Sure. But it's remarkable what these, these dogs can do. Yep. I mean, dogs can... Uh all these studies where you can hide something under a, a cup or, a, or and they they remember where it is and so on they have that kind of uh, uh they just pick that up with through natural selection over the years of living with people so is that that we 
limbic they get an incredible amount of information from us isn't that prefrontal that that they i mean they've got to they've got to anticipate something they have to have object permanence obviously i mean there's a lot of very interesting developmental things so look we've got a couple minutes left we ask all of our guests this because the i am approach on you know all the four domains home social biological and the i see how do i see myself how i think other people see me clearly this is not just confined to humans animals have an i am as well they're interested in what we think or feel about them but the i am has two rules small changes can have big effects what small change can you recommend professor to our listening audience given the animal human connection that can have an effect on their lives small change appreciate nature i'm not you know you know not everyone has to have an animal but i believe we all need to have some peace with the living environment mm. and you'll find a lot of peace because maybe your style is you don't want a dog or a cat then look at the trees birds mm. uh, just in other words, having some relationship with nature i think brings an incredible amount of, of comfort uh, and holding uh, appreciating uh, your own life as well by doing that Good so advice. that's that's one change I think that that's uh, very important Good advice. Uh, and the second rule uh, we control no one we influence everyone what kind <laughs> of influence are you hoping to be professor well I <laughs> with a background in public health I always hope that uh, my efforts will at least bring some some health to other people in in some way or another um, uh, I really do believe that uh, they find some by enjoying nature um, they can share with others as well um, some of the love they have for their their pets they should also include their love for other people um, so that's a that's a start much appreciated professor Beck thank you so much um, we have really appreciated this and we will be back next week thanks again for your time that's the-